This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got a phenomenal episode. We've got PJ Mallon and Chris Gowing. These guys are principals at MGBA Architecture and Interior Design. And they're both architects. Yeah, and it's actually an interesting thing. And both principals. Yeah. (laughs) Not at schools, though. No. No, No, that just means you own an architectural firm. (laughs) That's definitely what it means. Yes. But the exciting thing is we've had architects on in the past. Well, one architect, but that was early, early Early days. days. We have not had architects on the show in a long time, and it's it's about time. So it's great to have these guys on. The other thing about um, PJ and Chris that's really exciting is their firm has been around since 2005. They're, they are located in Mount Pleasant. They've basically watched Mount Pleasant transform. Right. And they focus on kind of interesting spaces. So uh, industrial, retail, tech spaces is... Residential, the, mixed use, hospitality. Right. They did Celebrities Nightclub, one of your favorite haunts. That is that is unbelievable because I know that place inside and out. Yeah. and it, I'm <laughs> I probably know it better than them. Yeah. <laughs> you're big on design and you're big on celebrities. And I'm big on celebrities. Yeah. yeah. But but the other thing is they're they're folks so they're focused on Mount Pleasant and Railtown primarily, which right. are two of the kind of most interesting neighborhoods in terms of transitioning. So it's exciting to hear about zoning changes, how the neighborhoods have changed, what's exciting, what's coming up, and also 
uh, basically kind of this idea of where they think the future is. Well, this is it. And and they have been actually working in Mount Pleasant and Railtown for a long time. These guys, they've been in business fi- over f- almost 15 years now. No, no, no. More than that, I think. More than 15 years. Yeah. 2005, Matt. Oh, yeah. 14. Sorry. Yeah, sorry 14 guys. years. Yeah. Um, so it, it's pretty exciting. It's, it's actually really exciting. And we have a lot, we cover a lot of ground in terms of which neighborhoods are up and coming. So you'll want to stay tuned for that because there are some areas in their opinion that are totally going to transform and pop in the near future. That's right. So stay tuned for that. Uh, but before we get to that, I just watched a, a movie called Titanic. Well, congratulations, Matt. Uh, that's, a, that's a new one, right? Is you know that, what? Uh, I, this is the thing. So, so many people have asked me how I have not seen Titanic. I think I was like 16 when Titanic came out. And my understanding of what it was was just a straight romance. Right. And I definitely was not interested. Well, in yeah, you haven't, you've seen The Notebook several times. You've just <laughs> no, never seen Titanic. But that, that came out a little later and I was right. fully, right. fully interested yeah. by that point in romance. But, uh, but yeah, Titanic. Uh, it's the the romantic part is kind of an afterthought in my mind. That is a that is a good movie. Was it good? Yeah, it two, it's two holds, thumbs up. It holds I'm, up. <laughs> it holds up. I'm surprised that thing didn't win any awards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What about uh, what's that movie that that uh, we saw when we were kids that terrified us? Uh, Poseidon Adventure. Poseidon Adventure. This yeah. is the one I actually wanted to watch. That uh, I was trying to watch it. Here's the thing, too. I was trying to show my seven year old. I was like, oh yeah, I watched that when I was a kid, The Poseidon Adventure, and uh, but my wife's not big into older, you know, 1972 it came out, but uh, but we started watching Titanic, and turns out that movie is not uh, not a movie a seven year old should watch either. There's like when the specifically when the boat goes nose up and is about to sink, and there's people flying down yeah. and like hitting their heads on every rung on the way down into the yeah. water spoiler La- alert. laughing through the tracks spoiler alert it sinks and la- laughing through the tracks on my tears yeah here. it was a, it was a tragedy and maybe it's a little too soon to be discussing it like yeah that. well congrats on uh on watching a movie from the 90s yeah. I, I don't know what to say there uh that that's good that you finally got around to it because you've been talking about it for decades my <laughs> wife has been pressuring me it's like that and uh, game of thrones yeah game of thrones actually i'm uh, season two now um, no spoiler alerts. Uh, no, uh, I think Secret is is all the way through. Secret, are you? Are yeah, you yeah I'm, up, I'm up to date. You're up to date. I heard, wow, I heard it was no scary on the weekend. It's actually it's really hard to stay away from Game of Thrones right now, like from in social media or anything. Well, actually, in the P- radio, PJ and Chris are both behind as well. The guests today they mentioned that they're plowing through like season one or season two as well. It sounds yeah. like everybody's kind of on the same page. I I actually find, and this goes back to Titanic and Game of Thrones, when somebody in your life, and I'm not going to name any names, is is really badgering you to watch something, I find right. it kind of oppressive, and and I yeah, like there's a reason why I haven't watched Titanic in the last 25 sure. years, and there's a reason why I'm uh, you know very slow every night. Uh, my wife Kim's like, "Hey, let's watch Game of Thrones," and I'm always like, "No, yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna watch Dateline again." Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Dateline. Still, uh, it's crazy too. The HBO sound comes on when when we start, and I immediately hope I'm watching Sopranos. <laughs> yeah, 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 uh, does yeah. anyone else feel or Curb Your Enthusiasm? Yeah, I feel like that's yeah, 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 yeah. But it's it's funny because it's it's actually it it's growing on me. I am not good at watching anything with dragons. Yeah, and, well, that's uh, what, well, another that's spoiler been, alert. There's dragons. There's dragons. Actually, the first yeah. season was kind of uh, there wasn't only at the end. I think yeah. is when the dragons turn up. Yeah. And that's when I turned tuned out. Right, you had me at Khaleesi. 
Anyways, guys, uh, let's uh, let's cut to our interview, Matt, with uh, PJ Mullen and Chris Gowing. This is a good one, guys. Enjoy. Okay, so we're here with PJ Mullen and Chris Gowing, principals at MGBA. How are you guys doing? Good, thank you. Doing fine. So maybe we'll start, guys. First, thanks for taking the time today. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourselves and about your company? Uh, MGBA, PJ and I formed this company in 2005 after working for a good number of years in larger firms around the city, and we decided it was time for us to go off on our own. So we started off entertainingly looking at each other across a empty office wondering what we'd done for the first uh, little bit, and it's grown since then into uh, a two-office firm. We have an office in Vancouver and one in Toronto, uh, operating with uh, a little over 40, 40 staff that uh, have carried us from now until, or from, from then until now. And we have been uh, operating, we initially started working in a lot of retail projects, a lot of commercial projects, uh, and eventually grew into more hospitality-based, uh, both interior and, and, and uh, building projects. And that since has expanded into pretty much all sectors, including multi-family, uh, industrial, government work, and, uh, and here we are. Why, why go out on your own and, and start your own firm? Well, um Back in, uh, I, I, I worked with Chris at, a, at a, a large firm called Kazian, and at the time they weren't actually that big. And um, right around sort of 2003, 2004, um, Chris and I were kind of early in our careers. We were intern architects, just becoming registered architects. And um, uh, despite Kazian being a great place to work, um, the, the writing was pretty much on the wall that the upper echelon of, of the senior management was pretty crowded there. Um, so growth opportunity for us just personally as individual architects was probably not necessarily the right place for us at the time. Um, so we just made that really brave leap and we literally didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't have any clients. Um, uh, luckily it was 2005. It was really, really busy in the lower mainland. So, um, as we kind of shifted into our own office space the phone just kind of started ringing we thought we were geniuses and people were really just really wanted to work with us but in fact what was going on is is um a, a real shift to um heavy demand for architectural services really started to come about in 2005 and and it kind of has not let up since then um f- for the whole industry across the lower mainland that's that's exciting that that seems uh, so in Vancouver, obviously, um, it would be a, a very busy industry. You would imagine Toronto is the same. Are those kind of the two leading cities in, in Canada for architectural services, both where you have offices, I guess? They're the two places that made the most sense to focus on. Right. Um, we started, obviously, in Vancouver, and we've been here for the majority of the time we've been operating. Uh, opening an office in Toronto was largely more the result of our clients' taking us there than, than, than ourselves making a concerted effort to decide that we needed another office somewhere else. Um, they're, they're, they're very different markets. It, uh, it took some time for us to adapt to that and to, to build that office into what it is now. Uh, but uh, it's now reached a point where it's got some traction and in spite of the fact that we had to sort of relearn how to open an office. Yeah, and, and um, I'd say Toronto versus Vancouver, I think Toronto's a bit more of a... Um 
a design leader um, in in the Canadian marketplace, predominantly in kind of retail and hospitality. Um, you know, the, they coin themselves the center of the universe all the time, and and in in that regard, they're kind of right when it comes to um, you know a new restaurant concept or a, a new retail concept. I mean, if it's coming out of Canada, it's generally coming out of Toronto. Um, but you know, the same can be said for Vancouver about kind of our approach to residential and, and what we've done and, and kind of the whole legacy of Larry Beasley and everything that, that sort of came to pass there has been, um, a real, a real leadership role for, for Canadian design coming out of our own city, which is pretty cool. So, yeah, we've had people, a number of people on, and I think it was Wendy Waters actually, who was pointing out that in the residential kind of condo or strata market that we're exporting. Uh, people all over North America and I guess even potentially beyond and Vancouver's seen as kind of a hub for talent and where you kind of figure it out but it sounds like on your guys uh, side the kind of commercial uh, hospitality side Vancouver's kind of second is Montreal where do they fit in there because they seem Montreal is is a really unique market and um, it, it could be definitely language barrier there's definitely sure. cultural barrier so so most architects that are practicing across the country will not practice in Quebec and vice versa um, so when we do retail or hospitality projects in Montreal which is seldom we, we team up with a local um, just because their systems are are really different and a, a lot of it comes down to language literally your drawings are all in French and so on and so forth so but insulated in other ways as well yeah yeah, yeah. I blame the Napoleonic Code, I think. It could be. <laughs> it could be. So I'm kind of interested in, you know, uh, in the hospitality, the kind of areas that you guys focus, it sounds like Vancouver's potentially um, kind of lagging a little bit behind Toronto. Why did you guys focus on commercial and, and not residential? Do you find one section uh, or one side of that divide more interesting? That's a good question. Um, I, I think more philosophically f- from from our firm's perspective is we kind of like the characters that are involved in commercial and development as opposed to, to you know single family homes, um, which we've shied away from over the last fourteen years. Um, we really enjoy working with clients that do it day in day out. They really know what they're doing, um, and we like repetitious clients. You know, we've we've worked with the same characters for fourteen years, and and that's what makes it totally fun. Um, uh, you know, w- we like to think that we have clients as opposed to projects, um, and a client can bring you fifty projects um, as opposed to you know interacting with one group or individual once in their lifetime um, is not necessarily what what we prefer to do. Um, as far as building types and typology, I mean, yeah, we we love it all. I mean, it. it to be able to work on mixed use projects and and multifamily residential is is cool, um, but it's um, it's often not conducive to working with the kind of people you necessarily want to work with all the time. So maybe we should back up a little bit here um, because a, a lot of the people listening are uh, are probably have a vague idea of what architects do, but maybe in, in terms of how how you guys approach uh, a project and and where you specifically focused had value, can you kind of talk about what architects are doing? Yeah, um, well, for lack of a better term, I mean, architects are basically, you know, building designers. I mean, uh, uh, it's the it's the oldest profession involved in the industry of construction. Um, uh, architecture means master builder. Um, 
if Chris and I were practicing 3,000 years ago, we'd be the contractor, the structural engineer, the 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 designer, the everything. But it's kind of splintered off into a number of different kind of um, facets and avenues. So what architects primarily are, we're really kind of the orchestra leader at design. And and uh, on a, on a given project, we'll be the 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 fulcrum and the focus point of of the team um, that is working hand in hand with the client on getting their project done, and we will coordinate the um, interior designers, structural engineers, mechanical engineers, landscape architects, um, code specialists, you know, whoever and and whomever need to to come along onto the project to get it done. Um, and generally speaking, we're also the kind of uh, central person at the at the design stage. So we're really there to kind of facilitate the eight or nine parties and kind of synthesize everything into kind of one building design, if you will. Um, so we also like to think of ourselves we're the the quarterback of the team, really um, getting it all done. But you know, there's always ten or eleven different individuals around complicated projects that we've got to work with all the time. Right, and you're, and synthesis is exactly the right word to use in the sense that I mean, there's the team aspect of it. There's the bringing all the interested parties into it to uh, develop and arrive at what a, a suitable design is. You're talking about all the influences that come from the client. What are their needs? All the influences that come from the city. And the, and the building code and all of those various requirements. All of that synthesizes together into the ultimate design solution uh, that is orchestrated with all the rest of the team members. Um, you used a, an orchestra analogy. I like to think of it more as like we've got a lot of good people in a kitchen making a meal that the city gets to eat for decades, for lifetimes. So yeah. that's, it's, an important, it's an important job to have in the sense that you've got to take an awful lot of different ingredients and make it good. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And then, you know, if you asked our architectural institute, you know, the official the official uh, line that, that needs to be said is that, you know, we're here in the public interest as well. You know, despite the fact that we are working for um, a hospital or a private developer or a restaurateur or what have you, you know, we are there to, to, to you know, move their interests forward, but we're, we're here to protect the public as well. And that, you know, that comes down to... Um, uh, abiding by zoning regulations, building codes, all the stuff that that sometimes our clients don't necessarily want to follow all the time, you know, as it doesn't necessarily align with their economic interests. Right. Sounds like some of our clients. <laughs> <I know. laughs> um, so, and I guess I guess at the end of the day as well, in in working with the public, are, are you advising from a design perspective as well? I guess there's the kind of the idea that you don't necessarily want to park a spaceship in an area that's maybe more character or, or are, are a lot of, is there a lot of, um, are, are a lot of social factors that come into role into play where people are, I mean, at the end of the day, the public is going to be seeing this building. Does that come into your, your design? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, just going back to what we were discussing in terms of the synthesis of many, many disparate parts, um, you know, you're, you're also uh, putting together, a design that responds to historical influences, to social needs, to uh, urban planning uh, needs in terms of what's adjacent to you and what's going on in the public sphere around you. I mean, all of those things, it's a, it's a, there's a lot of psychology to it as well. I mean, the, all of these things come together into design, and that's what architecture is. Yeah, and, and of course, 
uh, you guys are familiar with NIMBYs and the, the, right. the local public and so on and so forth. I mean, um, design uh, is is a really democratic process, and and it involves a lot of people, and everybody has a kick of the can um, before a building gets to its kind of final form. Um, you know, whether it's uh, a, a local planner in the planning department or the 15 neighbors that are yelling at that individual uh, with their opinions. I mean, we're all here to kind of synthesize all that stuff into the building form that is um, perhaps not perfect for any one individual, but it's a good compromise for everybody. And, and that's how buildings get made in this city. Do, do you find that at the end of a project that no one's happy or is everybody like presumably the, the amount that everyone is compromising uh, to get this thing done? Like at the end, is everybody like, that's, huh. that's a good question. That's, that's not, that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's not what question. I wanted. You know, I, <laughs> that's not how I envisioned this. You know, the, the, the adage of like, uh, yeah, if, if no one's happy around the table at the end of a, <laughs> probably at the end, right yeah, it's a, we've done the right <laughs> job and you know, you're probably right. Like, um, you know, sadly, if if the city got their way in everything, um, buildings would look one way, and if developers did it, it would they would look completely another way. And and if our bar clients did them, it would just be boxes with no windows, with no washrooms, and no way to get out, and nothing but <laughs> beer being sold. So, so you know, there has to be some some balance around the table, right? So that things make sense. Um, so your question is a good one. I think, I think yeah, I think uh, our developers always walk away from projects going, ah, we should have made a few more bucks. You know, I wish we got another story on that thing. Uh, and then a planner goes back and says, ah, I wish we could have haircut that developer a little bit more. Um, and, and if they're both walking away from the table, then, yeah, I think the process worked. Is, what's unique about doing business in Vancouver from your guys' perspective? I think the city of Vancouver is just under so much pressure to to get developed and redeveloped all the time that it's it's um, it's put of a, it's put all of our planning departments, uh, particularly in more urban areas, really on guard, um, and they feel that they have a duty to really protect the public interests and and they're always really suspect of applications that are walking in the door and what they're for. Um, I think that's pretty unique in Vancouver. Um, but as a result, I mean, we've got some pretty heady Boy Scouts at the city of Vancouver that look after the public interest. But as a result, I think we've got a great city. Um, there have been a lot of things that, that Vancouver's done right, and it's been because we've we've said no. Um, if you can think about not putting a freeway through the middle of our, uh, of our city in the 1970s, it sure. was because, you know, someone stood up and, and did the right thing. Um, but, but on the flip side, I think that, it, you know, Vancouver planning could probably start with more yeses than noes um i think would probably help address our our uh, housing crisis and our real estate prices and whatnot i think we just have a a really big pent-up amount of pressure on our city to get to get more building online and and um uh, our reluctance to approve everything is is making things more expensive i wonder just and this is totally thinking out loud um but i was in winnipeg on the weekend and uh we grew up in winnipeg and driving in from the airport like i don't go back all that often i was struck by how it's like identical it's like i could have been driving in 1995 it all looks the same right right? and whereas vancouver's moving like i wonder if part of that is you mentioned pressure but like the there's like a almost a knee-jerk reaction to kind of pump the brakes and and the city kind of sees themselves as as the one, the only person who's going to put their foot on the brakes to kind of because Vancouver's transformed. I mean, even the last ten years, right? It's just so dramatic. 
Um, yeah, I just I was struck because like, Winnipeg literally looks. I, I think it's I think it's just a supply and demand issue. I yeah, mean, yeah. I mean the the population of Winnipeg doesn't change all that much. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and so that's what you get as a result in terms of the built landscape. I mean, Vancouver is ushering in anywhere from thirty thousand to sixty thousand new people every sure. year, and they got to go somewhere. Um, and so, you know, Vancouver constantly has to take a hard look at itself as to how we accomplish that without without kind of wrecking what makes Vancouver so great, which is our proximity to all that we see on a great, lovely day like today. So, so maybe uh, moving on to Vancouver, just thinking about the city for a while here, what, ex- what areas are you guys excited about in Vancouver? From a professional perspective and development perspective yeah, or from yeah. a personal perspective? Both, actually. <laughs> both, both, yeah. both. Because those answers aren't necessarily <laughs> the same. Um, well, I think to touch on, you just mentioned Mount Pleasant. I mean, that's where one of the sectors we operate in a great deal has seen a great deal of change and evolution and, and movement over the last, when did we start the building we're in now? 2013, oh. something in that order. Yeah. And that coincided with some, some planning changes uh, for that light industrial area. And so we were put into a position where we needed to sort of reinvent how things were done in that area based on planning that, as I mentioned before, the city had yet to understand themselves, really, uh, because they hadn't implemented any projects in that area. Uh, so getting into that sort of evolution of a, of a, of a specific zone of the city is very exciting. Yeah. And since then, um, you've seen the same sort of things start to uh, begin in Railtown, where it has been existing stock in an existing form for a long time and now with uh, new zoning uh, being implemented in that area uh, trying to control the the manufacturing and industrial stock there while understanding that there's a need and the density increases and things that that might benefit that area um, we're going through the same process there now so that's very exciting to me and very exciting for the firm it's it's sort of taken one one sector of our work which is sort of industrial office and creating really this new sort of building type where you're where you're crashing those two things together and ending up with something that really benefits the city and is an interesting solution and uh and and so those are the two those are the two specific areas that I'm thinking of from a professional, professional. Uh, and, and, and perspective just to just to back up so so everyone understands so there was a zoning change um 5 6 years ago and can you kind of maybe delve in a little deeper as to what that change was and what the city was trying to accomplish uh, in in Mount Pleasant and I guess now Railtown. Sure, uh, they were a little different between the two of them. But to begin with Mount Pleasant, which was the first out of the blocks, that uh, was a combination of of wanting to protect the light industrial and manufacturing stock that has existed in that area for a long time, and the city has their arms around that in a very you know protective manner. Right. Uh, but also recognizing that there was a need for greater density of other uses. So essentially, there weren't enormous changes in, in, in that area from a zoning perspective, except for the fact that um, under certain conditions, you could earn or accomplish a greater percentage of office space, knowing that there's always a need for such things and that the, the downtown is a very different environment. Um, so that's, uh, that's how the, the zoning was, was rewritten at that time, around 2012, I believe. Uh, and so that's, that was the, the learning process we got to go through, is to explore with the city how, how to implement that new zoning and, and what were the pitfalls and what were the advantages of it and did it really reach towards what they were trying to accomplish. Uh, Railtown's a little different in the sense that they've created a, an entirely new zone for that called I-4, which uh, takes the existing manufacturing industrial zones in that area and 
sort of does the same thing, recognizing that there are new uses out there, creative products manufacturing and things that sort of take into account there's no, the manufacturing of, of iron flywheels and things like that aren't really happening down there. What you're seeing is an influx of tech and, and the need it's still manufacturing, but it's being done in a different way. It's much more aligned with, with an office need um, in terms of space. So that's that's where we've been going with that one. Yeah, and I mean the the, the neighborhood was re- a really good um, finger on the pulse to see you know if the if the city just tweaks a zone, um, the market responds really really quickly, and um, and Mount Pleasant is no exception. When we started our building, we were kind of one of the early pioneers in that area. We put a three story uh, light industrial building where we we're housed at Six in Ontario. Um, we were kind of the only new project in that kind of dead zone that has been the same way since the 1960s. Uh, and now you drive around there and there's 15 cranes all sort of going on and it's all speculative. Like, uh, you know, these guys are building, uh, crossing their fingers, hoping that animation studio is coming along or, or the new web design company or, or what have you come along. And sure enough, they, they, they show up. Um, and, and, to me, it's 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 super important for the city to allow this stuff because uh, you know you we all belong to UDI and things like that. The, the comment is if we don't get this stuff online quickly enough, we're going to lose out all of these great paying tech jobs to San Francisco and New York and Calgary and Toronto. And so it's really important that we do look at this stuff really carefully and, and change and respond as, as best we can. In thinking about how quickly industries are changing, how has you guys have been building industrial, your firm for the last 15 years or so has been building industrial spaces. How has the industry changed what you're building and the design? Well, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's changing slowly. Um, and at, uh, on, on the really kind of larger kind of traditional industrial is changing quickly. Uh, a lot to do with the influx of um, Amazon and how things are being delivered, and and the old seventy-two uh, foot trailers uh, out in the middle of you know South Surrey aren't necessarily the way we're going to get goods and services in these cities anymore. Um, we're going to see a lot more micro units and micro travel between units and whatnot, and that's that's coming, but that's that's being driven by the users, and unfortunately. Um, the way we develop industrial projects is if it is speculative, you basically just design them to what, what the cities want and what zoning wants and so on and so forth. So to some extent, we're almost designing a little bit behind the times, but um, hopefully in the next five, 10 years, our users are going to tell us what we're not doing quite right and things are going to respond pretty quickly. So, Just thinking about Mount Pleasant and, and this idea of the dead zone and and the city trying to protect um, the existing industrial kind of areas. Do you think there, or what is, if any, the relationship between, say, um, those changes in 2012 and and the residential market? Like, is there an interrelationship between those, or is it kind of, uh, is it just... Uh, happenstance that Mount Pleasant seems to have exploded as a popular residential neighborhood? Well, it's it's funny. Uh, if we had the same conversation four years ago, I'd say the reason why the city has gone out of their way to protect this stuff um, is because um, the Onis and the, the Battistons and everybody would love to have gone in the middle of Mount Pleasant sure. and put in tons of residential because yeah. the market was just screaming for it at the time. Um, it's a very, very different story right now. 
Um, so, you know, with the ebb and flow of market conditions, I mean, I think the city kind of smartly does move to protect some stuff, knowing that we're going to regret making some changes in eight years if the market changes, and it certainly has in the residential sector. So, so um, in, in that regard, I think there's a relationship there. Interesting. So in thinking about how the market has shifted in residential, right now, from our understanding, speaking to commercial brokers, it seems very busy still in uh, in the commercial space. Um, are you guys finding that uh, the commercial market's still busy? There's a lot of demand for for commercial industrial buildings being built still. And and do you think that the changes to the residential market may have an impact on, on your industry and, and what you're building? We haven't seen a lot of sort of connective tissue between what's been happening in the in the residential side of things, specifically on the condo side of things, and uh, what's been happening on the commercial, specifically this industrial office sort of push that's been going on for the last few years. Um, that seems to be, uh, aside from some momentary hesitancies when, when the market starts doing something unexpected, um, it doesn't really seem to have impacted that side of the market. Residential, we're involved in, in, in a couple of uh, mixed-use projects, and we've certainly seen the influence of, of the market there. Uh, but I, I, I haven't seen anything, uh, any examples of one being dragged unduly by the other. Uh, I, as far as I understand it, there's still a lot of excitement and motion and activity on the commercial side of things. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that our clients that have divisions of development that both deal with industrial and commercial as well as residential are far better positioned right now than you know the 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 usual kind of multifamily guys from out in the valley that only do four story walk ups. Those guys are severely quiet right now, and you know the BDs of the world that have two different divisions are they just get to shift their focus to the other side of the books. Yeah. So. Um, I think that if anything that might occur over the next 10 years as a result of what we're witnessing right now is there might be a lot more consolidation of development companies and and companies needing to diversify out to just be able to respond to market conditions as they kind of flip around every 10 years or so. That's interesting. Kind of in the downturn, consolidation, is that's when it happens, right? And and that's, that makes a lot of sense that the ability to kind of – being big enough to be able to shift, just shift focus is uh, – the big guys always win in the end. Uh, they always do, yeah. <laughs> Maybe kind of continuing along the thread of uh, Vancouver-specific, what, if anything, is kind of unique about Vancouver from an architectural perspective, in your opinion? Is, is there anything that kind of sticks out to you? I think um, I think the, the full embracing of um, mixed-use in, in the downtown area. I think Vancouver was super revolutionary in, in bringing um, mixed-use projects in the middle of downtown Vancouver after Expo 86 that really transformed the city very, very quickly um, and and turned what was a very suburban place into a very urban place. And I, I grew up in Vancouver, and, and um, I grew up on the North Shore, and and you would never go downtown. Downtown was frightening, you know. <laughs> it was it was a dead zone on the weekends, and it was where your parents worked, and um, and you forgot about it between Friday at five o'clock and Monday morning at eight o'clock. Um, but but um, Larry Beasley and other planners kind of turned that notion on their head, and they put a lot of really good, interesting mixed use downtown. And now I think we've got, you know, possibly one of the most urban places in North America. Um, in a, in our downtown area, and 
as a result, we finally have people that move to Vancouver that just don't want to go hiking. They actually, <laughs> they actually might want to go see some art, um, yeah. which is uh, which is unique um, and and very different in my lifetime. And right. so I think that that Vancouver's been very proactive at doing that. But I think there's an underlying uh, suburban kind of uh, buyer's remorse that still goes on. I think that um, as much as we have this great. Um, urban and dense downtown. I think that if you asked anybody really point blank at a at a cocktail party, what they really want to be able to do is live in the West Side and not have any neighbors, um, but be able to enjoy all that stuff downtown. Yeah. So we we kind of have a funny tug of war in our own identity there, um, versus a place like Toronto, which has just always been urban and it it is what it is. It's a sign of Vancouver growing up. I mean, it's it's still it's still not sort of fully become an adult in that respect i think that's interesting as a young city right that that uh kind of going through those growing pains where you know uh a six-story purpose-built rentals being proposed in kits and everybody goes nuts because it's going to destroy the neighborhood but at the same time it's the projects that you were mentioning pj of of the the big mixed use uh, undertakings downtown that's really transformed that area and those form the basis of the exports that we were touching on before. Right. People were looking to us, for example, rather than the other way around. And that's where you see a lot of that form of development you know, creating itself in Toronto and places where that really didn't exist before in the same way. Yeah, and we were, we were kind of lucky as Vancouver was, our downtown was really empty in the 80s. So, you know, with, with the exception of the, of, of, the, of the West End, um, you know, we really had no one living downtown. So it was kind of easy to kind of blast all that stuff in. Um, there weren't any NIMBYs around to, to kind of, uh, to naysay. Um, but you know, you're good luck trying to bring this stuff to Kitsilano. Um, it ain't going to happen without a dog fight, but, um, if we want to address our, our housing issues, we we're going to have to just take it on the chin and get some more development on, on, on the books. That's, that's an interesting point that, you know, like the idea of Vancouverism almost couldn't work in a lot of cities that were maybe more established their downtown areas, right? Because we had we had um, people from from different development communities that have done master plan communities where it's it's a lot easier to go into kind of an open vast space and design everything like at Southeast once, Vancouver. or have uh, or Yale Town. You think about just sure. the control that Concord had designing kind of the perfect little you know slice of downtown, right? Yeah. Yeah, it'll be. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the south side of Falls Creek because we're going to have another really big wave of development that's going to hit between Granville Island and Olympic Village, and it'll be that kind of um, test to see how urban that part of Vancouver really is. Or are we going right. to have a lot of resistance there? I'm not too sure. Um, it'll be interesting. What are what are some of the challenges that you guys are facing when you're when you're going into an area like Mount Pleasant? and and designing buildings like what are the what do, what do you do you see any challenges facing that area um from from design perspective uh if we're talking about the industrial and office zones where we were discussing previously yeah. um I, I don't see a lot of motion right now in terms of added density or, or significant changes to the zoning it may come uh but in terms of challenges uh they're largely uh well, dealing with the city again in how they want to interpret their own rules because we've seen over the many buildings that we've been uh, involved with in that area, we've seen the city sort of evolve their thinking on what their original intentions were. So that's obviously a challenge. There's always um, some legacy geometric challenges in the sense that 
that happened to be divided into relatively small lots, some a, a, a hair under 50 feet wide, where on a sloping uh, piece of ground presents a lot of challenges in terms of parking and how do you get underground and how do you make the building actually work. Uh, from a design perspective, uh, it has the advantage of being in a municipal or in a, in a manufacturing and industrial area, which isn't subject to the same necessarily the same design controls that a mixed use residential building would be subject to in terms of city proposal or city uh, process. So that's allowed us a little more freedom to, to really explore and push some boundaries in terms of, okay, what is this new type? Because essentially that's what it is. This marriage of, of, of manufacturing or industrial and office on top. Um, you know, what does that really want to be? How should it express itself? And that's been a really interesting process. And that's pushing in even more interesting directions in Railtown, where greater density and greater height are permitted. Is there a specific project that you're really excited about that you're, you guys are working on? You're probably excited about all of them, I would imagine. <laughs> all but, them uh, we are, your children. we and everyone looking at them are really excited about all of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, uh, I'd say out of the... Probably the Railtown projects that we're looking at right now, and there's three of them, uh, are because they are sort of larger scale and uh, of greater density and in some ways flexibility than what was going on in Lower Mount Pleasant. Uh, I'm most excited about those in that particular sector because they're, they're, they're offering the most opportunity for interest and, and reinvention. As an architect, I mean, we, we, yeah. we, of course, appreciate that opportunity. Uh, so I would say uh, there's two on Railway Street uh, in particular that are that are either uh, both in in the uh, interesting phase of the project where you're dealing with the City of Vancouver approvals uh, are the are the two that highlight things at 48 Railway and across the street at 505 Railway. And do you guys look to other cities as as models for what you're doing? Like like when they change the zoning, were you like, oh, this reminds me of x somewhere else that we can kind of draw on or is it kind of just making it up as you go along well architects are always looking for precedents and 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 looking around everywhere yeah. uh, and, and and different architects view such things differently uh in the sake of or in the case of, of of mount pleasant and railtown i think it's it's really more of a an open book for us in the sense that there it wasn't really necessary for us to start searching out specific examples or precedents of buildings that would allow us to come up with a good solution. It's really uh, been a, a start from nothing approach where we could uh, really explore what we do and, and design things to suit specific conditions. There is always the, there's always the stuff that we do say in the office, like when we, when we're designing buildings and, and again, because we're evolving from a really suburban city to an urban city, we always say like, well, what, what do they do in New York <laughs> or what, you know, how are they solving this in Paris? Uh, because these cities are thousands of years old and you have to be able to, you know, load your restaurant in the middle of downtown off the Champs-Élysées. So somehow something has to work. So we, you know, we look to those super urban examples in a lot of regards and, and the conundrum in Vancouver is a lot of our zoning is still pretty antiquated and it really is kind of geared to sort of suburban sensibilities where engineering departments win all the battles with their planning departments and it's all about the vehicle. So, so often we we just have to kind of look around and imitate the the bigger the bigger cities. When you say it's, did you say it's all about the vehicle? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I, I, I would say that um, North American cities predominantly really kind of organize themselves around around the vehicle, and, right? And you know, delivering 
people with vehicles and goods with vehicles and so on and so forth. Um, I, I think Vancouver is coming to a day of reckoning where we're actually getting urban enough where we actually have, like, if we think about the cross-section in our office of 30 people, I would say about five people drive. Um, whereas 25 years ago, it would have been 25 people yeah. drove. Yeah. Um, so literally, Vancouver is very quickly becoming a place where you don't necessarily need to own a vehicle anymore. And that's a good thing. Um, but it, it, it came with a lot of kicking and screaming and changing bylaws and changing attitudes in engineering departments and, and changing real estate purchasing habits and, and challenging those ideas. Right. And presumably it's a generational shift, but also kind of that urbanist thrust that seems pretty strong here right now. I think so. Yeah. I, you know, I think that, um, I think that Vancouver is of two minds for young people. I think you either throw your arms around the whole urban experience and, sign up with car to go and learn to live in 400 square feet or you, you retreat to Langley. Um, and that's, that's just kind of the dichotomy. Just seeing what you see, uh, since you started your guys firm 13 years or 14 years ago, I guess, uh, if you were residential real estate investors looking to buy a property right now, what neighborhood are you really excited about? Right. Um, I could say some stuff that might be too offside for the podcast, but no, please. Do. I think you yeah. should immediately well, do that. Well, <laughs> there was a study done. Uh, it, I think it was out of Harvard in the '80s, and it was done by an urban planning department. And they looked at comparative values at, at you know what neighborhoods get gentrified, and sadly, it was follow the prostitutes. So you literally, you literally look at sadly where these these workers are, and they are often in um, undervalued, Yelta. close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, let's, absolutely. It's a perfect let's, example. Let's, let's yeah. go through the examples. I mean, when I grew up, Seymour Street. Uh, it was Seymour and Davy, and then it became Yaletown, and then it became well. Now it's all going out to Sunset, and so on and so forth. And these are. These are locations that have to be close to downtown. They're in areas that aren't very well surveyed or utilized, and um, they're extremely practically close to downtown. And so if I'm thinking about stuff in Vancouver, I think there, there's going to be um, a skirmish between the planning department and the market about protecting all of the light and heavy industrial stuff around the foot of Commercial Drive on the north side, close to um, like Cordova and all that kind of area. Um, let's call it east of Railtown. I think that, that that part of Vancouver is poised to go next, and there's going to be a ton of pressure on it, and the city will have to react in some way to try and protect some of those those more kind of industrial-like uses because the, 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 the resi guys will come knocking in about five years. For yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So is that kind of the North commercial kind of where commercial hits Hastings? I think and even, and yeah. even it sounds like even North of Hastings, like Venables and Clark, like yeah. that's kind of ground zero for a ton of new real estate pressure that's coming over the next 10 years. Yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, I drive on my way home every day past there and I'm always kind of struck actually I think feel like that was like a year and a half ago. I actually literally saw a prostitute when you said that. I was like, yeah, oh, there's yeah, like yeah, right yeah, on the yeah. Clark and the uh, and Venables. Yeah. Well, that's and, that's the joke, yeah, right? That's yeah. right by the no frills where, you know, that, yeah. the, that no frills could stand to have a couple frills. I think. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> 
Yeah, we're at, we're at both absolutely. We've talked about it on the program a lot, being really excited about kind of Hastings Sunrise, but also that yeah. kind of North Commercial area as well. Yeah, um, it just seems so ripe for for development, but also for just uh, new residents in Vancouver kind of moving into that area. Are there other areas that you're excited about? Like, you, we, I'm thinking about if following that logic of that study, yeah, we can think about more like the less inhabited spaces, maybe that kind of more industrial spaces perhaps that kind of pepper the city of Vancouver. Um, anything kind of maybe around the perimeter of, of the downtown area? I, I think that um, all the light industrial around Marine Gateway is actually going to see some heavy-duty pressure. Uh, um, it was interesting to see um, PCI move in there and do that really super dense project at the bottom right. of the uh, Canada line. Um, to me, being a lifetime Vancouverite, I couldn't think of the last place I'd want to live. But oddly, it's every time I want need to go to a movie, that's where I go now. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> well, and the price per square foot there is astronomical. It was ridiculously yeah. high, but they they got it. Um, you know, I can't suggest that everybody that lives in those buildings um, has a Vancouver or, pardon me, a Canadian passport, but. Um, that being said, um, now Ani's doing a big, big set of projects down there, and um, it's just kind of spreading. And I think that that it's um, because of Canaline, it's super accessible to downtown, and and there's some nice aspects of it. And with with great big projects come some really great big public spaces. And I thought the PCI development was was super successful and really well considered. And it's just just the beginning of that area. So I think that that's going to see some some pretty heavy duty pressure. Yeah, that that that's a that's a really interesting one. It actually kind of reminds me, it's funny, I was at Solo District this week in North Burnaby Brentwood area. Yeah. And again, you know, this like the SkyTrain line but like the really really beautiful building with um everything that you possibly need within about uh, you know, call it like a a kilometer radius basically right um so super convenient so it it, it makes sense what are, what are your thoughts on river district kind of southeast vancouver i don't give it too much thought um no but I, on, on, don't hold much of an opinion about the river district that, at all yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, i think the one project that's going to be super interesting is ian gillespie's project at oakridge yeah and, right. and the fact that he's kind of dropping a metropolis in the middle of a single family neighborhood um it's gonna it's gonna create some really undue heavy densification pressure on that local area that's going to be severely resisted by the people that live there um whereas you know the other kind of light industrial areas that we mentioned have a little easier time because there are less sure. nimbies and bananas around you yeah yeah, yeah. So um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with Oak Ridge. I think that it's going to be a super successful project for Ian. Um, but it'll be, I wonder what a, what a catalyst it may or may not be because of its, the fact that it's in the middle of a, a, a very traditionally single family you, residential. You know what, it's funny because we've talked about that project just from, largely from, you know, like it's very beautiful and it's kind of stunning and, and the price per square foot's very high. All those factors, I haven't seen it as, from that perspective of kind of the politics and the boldness of taking that on, but that seems right in line with kind West of Bank's West Bank's never Bank. been bold. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I was no, say, that's right. It doesn't sound like West Bank at all. <laughs> that's but, right. Uh, yeah. Politically kind of uh big move. West Bank's the best at that though, because they, they, 
they give you like this beautiful art exhibition and they hand you this like the nicest coffee table book you've ever seen yeah and then they build a massive tower in the middle of a residential community so it's kind of the, the smoke and mirrors of of the developer yeah yeah they're good at it yeah yeah for sure maybe along those lines and this might be a, a question that you don't want to answer but um you know you guys work with donnelly group uh aquilini uh, you've worked with on you've worked with kind of uh some of the names a lot of our listeners gonna are gonna know um like who's the most or not the most who's one of the most interesting characters of the of this kind of vancouver's elite there in this industry, I think Ani would always leap forward as a, being described as an interesting character. They they know how to get things done in a different way than your comments about uh, about Ian Gillespie. Yeah, um, they they have certainly made an art of putting their head down and getting things done. It's what they're it's what they're they're best at. Yeah, uh, and we've been involved with them for over ten years in various projects around the Lower Mainland and now outside of the Lower Mainland. And uh, I'd say that's uh, that would be. I'm going to just use the word interesting liberally <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, 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 and suggest that they would be the most interesting name that leaps to mind, <laughs> both from a professional perspective and just watching how they operate. Right. And everybody's kind of had to follow suit. And, you know, Ani was one of those early developers that actually became a construction company that had to have a development company to keep them busy. And, and I think a lot of the, the, the bigger players are kind of falling into that um, – into that size of having to exist. And so they're, they're, um, and they're stuck in those positions. They, you know, they can't go out and hire Alice Dawn to build a project for them because they're leaving 10% of value on the table by not building it themselves. So, right. so we've got these giant construction companies disguised as development companies that are feeding their own furnaces. And, um, and Ani was one of the first to do it. And uh, as a result, they're just gargantuan now. I mean, they're in Chicago and Mexico City and L.A. And, and in that regard, I mean, we're, we're exporting our development techniques to the rest of the world. Yeah. And you grew up on the North Shore, so you yeah. did you know those guys when you were younger? Or, yeah, yeah. They or were just all, the name was floating around? I, I hid from them in the hallways. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd get stuffed into a locker. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Sounds interesting. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's why I use the word. Yeah, yeah. Good Christmas party though. But you know, I'll just I'll add one, I'll add one thing about Ani. I mean, the one thing that they actually have been quite good at, they they have been very good at uh, for us is has been um, gleefully dragging us into projects and scales and sizes of stuff that that we wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. And they've been a really good client to us over the years, um, and and they're willing to just. You know, Chris designs the buildings, and they just they don't look at it one way or another. Uh, you know, they have their sophisticated ways that they like to actually construct things, but mm-hmm. in terms of actually dealing uh, design, they really do kind of rely on their consultants to bring a lot of stuff to the table, and they're pretty sophisticated and good that way to deal with that. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, off off air, we were talking a little bit about kind of um, the North False Creek kind of area. Um, and, and why you're kind of excited about kind of what's coming up there, or at least the, the, the tensions that are going to exist kind of moving forward. I, I'm thinking, well, South Falls Creek. So, um, I'd say the kind of two stretches of lands, the one between Olympic village and Granville Island, which is all city owned leasehold stuff that I'm possibly one of the foolish owners of. I'm not too sure yet. Yeah. Um, and Do, do you think those leases are, 
are my understanding was they're going to get renegotiated, but you. My understanding is they're going to get renegotiated, but my understanding was that we were going to win the Stanley Cup in 2011. And things, <laughs> things can change in a moment. Um, but uh, the city has guaranteed them in their, in their way. Um, but along with that is a really big master plan that's going to see a, a lot of density there. And as we had talked about before, I think that you know people that live downtown have a certain appetite for towers popping up around them, and it's, it's you know urban living. Um, but if you try to present that kind of density in Kitsilano, I think you're going to have a riot on your hands. And it'll be interesting to see how South Falls Creek um, accepts it or rejects it, um, being kind of quasi-urban. Um, but the... I, I think the the hand grenade in the whole mix is the um, uh, the First Nations lands around the base of Broad Street Bridge, where you know, frankly, they really get to do what they want, and you know, it's their land, it's it's their governance, and they're going to bring a whole bunch of density there, whether. Um, uh, the precious folks up in the west uh, west side like it or not, it's it's coming, and so we're going to see probably the next big push of development is all going to be on the south side of False Creek, and it's really going to change what how we think about the city. It's going to be a very very dense place. So we're also seeing so so the south side of False Creek, and then also the north northeast False Creek plan as well. So two areas right around the downtown core that are are kind of set to change dramatically in the next 10 years. Can you talk a little bit about the Northeast Falls Creek? Do you, is there anything that you're excited in connection to maybe Railtown or or just thoughts in general? Well, I think it's um, it's kind of the last bastion of those old expo lands that haven't been really undone, and they're kind of the, the connective tissue between um, Falls Creek and Chinatown and the downtown east side and Gastown and Railtown and all these places that that have been separated by the the viaduct and and at the at the risk of insulting all my friends that drive in every day from the valley you know i think when that viaduct finally comes down and that part of vancouver grows up into an urban place it's going to be very interesting to see that fluidity of the urban landscape go from south to north and to see what kind of impact that's going to have it, it, mm. it it'll be super interesting early plans that we've seen um lots of lots of great civic space and park space so it it, it hasn't been um, just a, a total developer win there. So I think there, we're going to have some pretty nice places to live uh, in that area. Fantastic. Maybe we'll, we'll leave it there, but can you guys stick around for the five wire? Sure. Five quick questions about Vancouver. So maybe we'll start with you, PJ. What is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver? Oh, that's a good one. Um, man, I've lived, I've lived in a lot of them. I've been thrown out of a lot of them <laughs> because of the economics of being an architect. Um, uh, I, I've got a pretty good soft spot for where I'm at on on the south side of False Creek right now. But my previous my previous home was kind of in Mount Pleasant. I was around 18th and Main, and and uh, we watched that uh, neighborhood transition from nothing to what it is now. And it's it's just you're you're tripping over hipsters um, and great places to eat and drink all the way along, which is, which is great. And and I and I think that. Um, it's got a bit of kind of East Van attitude still, so it's a little more uh, accepting to civic change, and it's not so stuck up. It's it's a it's a great great part of the city that's just super accessible and close to other parts of the neighborhoods. It's a great answer. How about you, Chris? I'm going to go with the West End. I have a long history myself with that area, but as as an area that has been grown into such an incredibly dense area where everything is still walkable. 
um, living down in the Denman area of the West End uh, for the many years that I have, I can't think of a better uh, collision of residential and, and walkability and village in the middle of a city sort of experience. Uh, th- that's my pick. Yeah, yeah, you're not the f- you're not the first. It's uh, it's pretty unique in a lot of ways. The West End. It really is. Favorite bar or restaurant? Probably not on Denman. Maybe. Maybe Interest- on Denman. Interestingly, <laughs> I'm going to go restaurant versus bar because of who's sitting beside me. Um, but uh, España is a great little tapas place. Love it. Yeah. That I can't get enough of. And, and seeing the rather, unfortunately, intense turnover of restaurants that you find along that street just because of the seasonality of it. Uh, I'm happy it's been there as long as it has, and I hope it continues to be so. Very interesting. That's a good one. And uh, is it Alhambra? There's a really good beer there, actually, as well. Yes. That's quite nice. The Green Neck Bottle Alhambra. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes, I've enjoyed those on Main Street. <laughs> um, How about you, PJ? Well, Same that, question. That brings me to, well, um, we have really good friends that own and operate the, the Cascade Lounge on Main Street. That's kind of my watering hole on Fridays, and we get together with a bunch of other designers there, and uh, have drinks. Um, it's, it's just a, it's a cool, understated, um, non-pretentious, non-chainy feeling kind of place. Um, but if I have to go for like an old traditional restaurant, I love Bishop's. I think, uh, it's old, it's got carpet, it's, um, uh, it has excellent West coast food and it's been sitting in its tiny little location in Kitsilano for decades and decades and decades. And it's still great. We haven't had bishops no. before. That's a, that's a good answer. Um, where is the first place that you bring someone from out of town? Start with you, Chris. I'm going to give a really unarchitectural answer and say Stanley Park. I mean, for as an extension of the same comments I made about the West End being this collision of something small and big at the same time, having Stanley Park immediately adjacent to it just seeing that adjacency is a really wonderful thing to tour around. You know, you have to go through over a bridge and through some pretty heavy density to get to the West end. And then suddenly you're in this enormous uh, planted, wonderful forest area right. and, and with the seawall and all the other great things that are associated with it. So that's where that's, that's the, that's what I usually do. Yeah. It's, I, I gotta say Granville Island usually, I mean, I think it's kind of a given it's, um, it's urban, it's pedestrian, it's unique. Not all cities tend to have those interesting public markets and great civic spaces, so it's a it's a no-brainer. For the record, I was going to say Granville Island, but it seemed too predictable. <laughs> <laughs> we have a new a new question uh here that we're trying out. Uh so PJ, what is one piece of advice you would tell your 18-year-old self today? Um use Rogaine. <laughs> Uh, as best as possible. Um, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I would say in the context of real estate and what we're talking about here, um, find a place you like, move there, and stay there. Because um, if you want to make fortunes in our, in our, uh, in our own backyard, it's, it's not about hopping around and moving around all the time. It's, it's uh, picking, your, picking your Scrabble tiles and playing the word. So... Um, th- that, that's a piece of advice to young people I always try to give, which is, um, try and stay in your home for at least 10 years and get to know your neighborhood. It's good advice, especially right now. Uh, I would probably go with a more general answer that I've struggled with most of my life. If you don't look at things in black and white, start figuring out what the gray is as soon as possible. And if it was being 18 now, watch out for any form of 
social media. Yeah. <laughs> Except notwithstanding podcasts. Podcasts, yeah. however, are fantastic. Um, and, and final question, what is one thing that you have purchased recently for under $500 that has had an impact on your life? So it could be a, a book, a gadget, an app. It could be anything. Uh, I'm going to say a really good set of cooking knives. That is something that we that, were gifted a knife not long ago, each of us, and uh, yeah, game changer, game changer from using a butter knife for years <laughs> for, for prep cooking. <laughs> I'm I'm going to use that as possibly the answer for both of us because I just purchased a set of knives for PJ's birthday, which happened a few days ago, and he's <laughs> equally appreciative of having some proper tools in the kitchen. Very cutting, very cutting remark. Um, I have to say, uh, getting Crave TV. Because I've had to binge watch Game of Thrones with my girlfriend, and it's brought us together and apart in the same <laughs> solid month. Um, but outside of that, it, it's, it was just recently my birthday. It wasn't a purchase, but um, but uh, the the set of knives was great from Chris. But my girlfriend got me a set of um, Beats by Dr. Dre headphones, so I feel very comfortable in this podcast right yeah, now. Yeah. He's on my ears. <laughs> are are you uh, caught up? For Game of Thrones, I'm right cut off, and I'm not going to offer any spoilers. Good, good. Okay. Appreciate Adam's that. in season one. I'm, I'm in season, season two. I'm, no, oh, season I'm in two. early season two as well. I'm yeah. glad to hear I'm not the only one. I'm just getting through season <laughs> one right now. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming down, guys, and and for taking the time today. That was a, a fascinating conversation. And uh, how can we find out more about MGBA? Well, MGBA.com is available on the internet machines, and. Uh, we are always, well, one thing we're known for is just being able to have conversations with people. If, if anyone is interested in learning more about what we do, feel free to give us a call or come down to the office. Mm-hmm. And ask for either Chris or Ed, but not me. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again. So there you have it, folks, our discussion with PJ Mallon and Chris Galling from MGBA Architects and Interior Design. Really fascinating having PJ and Chris on the program, Matt. And man, that was a good five wire. Really enjoyed that. And also that new question uh, there. Yeah, the new question really. uh, Actually, these guys were ready, though. Yeah, I feel like uh, we were going to stump them, but they they both had great responses. Yeah, so. no kidding. No um, kidding. What else do we have for today? Um, oh, quickly, Matt, just quick takeaway too. Super excited about all the areas that we covered uh, in this in this episode as well. And it's interesting to talk to guys that are on the front lines dealing with hospitality, commercial, retail, mixed use, industrial. These guys really know what they're talking about. And uh, yeah, some great insight into uh, up and coming areas. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably excited about those communities as well. For sure. For sure. What else do we got? We got the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast.com. Yeah. What do you get over there? Oh, man. If you haven't went over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com yet, you're missing out. We got an updated news feed. We got the Livewire, which is our weekly mailer. Uh, We're sending out assignment deals right now. I mean, you want to go over there. First of all, I think the site's just a useful resource, but sign up to our weekly email list. We also got private client services. Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information at your fingertips It's free, it's so user-friendly, and it really is the best research tool out there if you're looking for real estate in Vancouver or actually all over BC. We can set you up all over BC. We have access to all the boards in British Columbia. So get in touch 
for that. Absolutely. And you can do so by giving me a call at any time, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secret line. Info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Just out of curiosity, Matt, which character from uh, Game of Thrones does secret remind you of? Oh, I'm kind of in and out on it. I'm. Uh, he, let me think. I think he reminds me of Jon Snow, if I'm not mistaken. Wait I don't really know the characters that well. Jon, but no. I'm actually, I think it's Jon Snow. I'm here. I'm searching no, it right now. come on. He's, yeah, he's the steward in the Night Watch. And that he's, is Jon Snow. Oh, no, wait. He's Jon Snow's closest friend. Uh, <laughs> this is, I'm thinking of Samuel Tarly. <laughs> Have a good week, guys. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? Honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah, you know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the and way. And I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Conkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer, and they're looking for both donations, and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020.